if, 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 he says, if we had done this, if we had done this, quote, we didn't love freedom enough. We purely and simply deserved everything that happened afterward. Wow. Is this true? He talked about how these people did not want to stop clapping for this, for Stalin, right? No one wanted to be the first one to stop. And people were willing to just, you know, there were old people there, they were getting tired, but they were willing to just drop dead rather than stop clapping because people were watching. These police forces were watching to see yeah. who's going to be the first and then they would likely be arrested. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, Carter and I will chat about a few chunks of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's nonfiction masterpiece, The Gulag Archipelago. To begin with a quote, here's one small sentence from The Gulag Archipelago, in which Solzhenitsyn advises us to, quote, own only what you can always carry with you. No languages, no countries, no people. Let your memory be your travel bag. And for a discussion about a person who knew this and much more, let's go into that chat with me and Carter. Hi, Carter. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'd like, I guess this is my first question. My first question will just be simply, how do you react to this book? Why do you think it's worth reading? And, you know, to frame this question, we can use, at the very beginning, he directly addresses his reader, Solzhenitsyn does, and says, and those who, like you and me, dear reader, go there to die, right? So he's talking about how people get around. How do people end up at the gulag? He directly addresses his reader and pulls the reader in and says, you and me are going on this journey and it will end in a kind of death, you know? Um, A kind of psychological death or emotional death. Why would we consent to go on such a journey with him? In your reading of this text, what stood out to you as particularly memorable, wise, beautiful? Why is this a book worth reading? Yeah, so like you said, early on, he he's, I mean, within the first three paragraphs, he's telling us that we're going to go there with him and we're going to die, essentially. But right here in the beginning, too, there's a lot wrapped up with the title, even, um, the Gulag Archipelago. What does that word archipelago really mean in this? And that's what stood out to me early on was so i'm a geography major oh cool and archipelago might have a little bit more meaning if you kind of understand and break down that word and so it's essentially a chain or group of islands right and so he's taking that into context this chain this group of prison labor camps Mm. um but also archipelagos um in their creation oftentimes like the hawaiian archipelago they're formed through volcanic activity right Mm. there's a lot of forces going on so these these prison these labor camps they're they're formed they're created through a lot of processes and oftentimes even though you have islands that are grouped together they're often defined by their political boundaries and so in this whole this reading i mean it's touching on politics it's touching on these human processes but he's really just kind of dragging us into these islands and helping mm. us see from his perspective what is really the human condition. Why do people do what they do? And not to drag this on too much, but I took a class on the Pacific Islands and we talked a little bit about the differences when these Pacific Islands were discovered between a European perspective, like these Spanish and these Portuguese explorers, 
how they view these islands as being isolated, trapped off from the world. Mm. And with these, these, uh, kind of these roadblocks, like this ocean, this vast ocean, whereas the Islanders, they were seeing the ocean and being on these islands as a blessing, as an ability to, to navigate, to trade, to use the stars and whatnot. So there's these two contrary um, perspectives. And I think he wants us to consider both perspectives as if we were on the island and outside of the island. And so that's a, it's a difficult task that we have as the reader because he's going to throw a lot of things at us, but we really do need to kind of pay attention to both perspectives here. Wow. That's such a great perspective. One that I have never brought to this book, this kind of geological geographical perspective, but you're, so I've never considered this, but you're absolutely right. I always, I mean, it's a clear metaphor when you think of it in terms of a chain of labor camps that kind of stretch out like an archipelago of islands, but you're absolutely right to take this metaphor a step further because this chain of islands, they, they work, they are isolated in a way. They have their own kind of inner politics inside of the Soviet Union. And, and each labor camp will have its own politics separate you know, and social hierarchies separate from other labor camps. Mm-hmm. So they are quite isolated. And yet this other perspective that you're bringing in is wonderful because he feels immense solidarity with everyone else who has been in one of these quote unquote islands, one of these labor camps. So yes, there's a, there's this like ocean of distance between them and this feeling of isolation and captivity, but um, across those boundaries is forged this immense connection, human connection and solidarity with his fellow inmates. This is, this is a wonderful perspective. And in fact, he begins with a dedication. So even before chapter one, this is a kind of, it looks like a poem. It's formatted like a poem on the page. And he says, I dedicate this to all those who did not live to tell it. And may they please forgive me for not having seen it all, nor remembered it all, for not having divined all of it. I want to just ask you about his voice as a writer. Like, how would you describe and how did you react to his voice, his personality? Because I think his personality is, he doesn't leave his personality off of the page, you know? So what is that personality like? How would you describe it? And how do you think it contributes to the power of this book? Yeah, he has a very unique, as I was reading, I kept looking at those two pictures of him as when he was in detention and then um, when he was released from the camp. And you can see there that he has gone through, he has seen some things. He's he's been exposed to a lot of different unfortunate circumstances. And as I read that introductory dedication, I feel like there's a sense of responsibility that he has on his shoulders, like almost not quite a burden. Um, but it's interesting that he asks for forgiveness and he's really trying to do justice to all these people that had to go through, um, what they went through in these, these camps and in this time when there was a lot of, um, injustice going on, but he does have different tones as I was reading there were some points when I even sensed some humor as strange as that might sound. Um, I mean, but it was really interesting to see how we use so many different perspectives, so many different stories, um, and and really a a lot of different tones. Humor. Absolutely. is unexpected. He can be hilariously sarcastic, you know, or kind of faux naive, like what I'm getting arrested. You know, he can kind of heighten, he can use humor to heighten the absurdity people getting arrested for nothing. 
you're right to point out he asks for forgiveness um, because he is under this immense responsibility. Who else? You know, there are there are fellow survivors, but he he said to himself, "I have to tell as many stories as I can possibly tell." So we can tell, can't we, that Dostoevsky is a literary slash spiritual ancestor of his. He's taking on this kind of Dostoevskyan load. This, you say, yeah, burden isn't quite the right word. You're right. Uh, responsibility, that's the only word. Thing. I will tell as many stories as I can tell. And forgive me if yours didn't get into, into this book. <laughs> you know, this is yeah. wonderful. I would add humility. So humor, to just, just to describe the tone of voice, humor for sure, anger, humility. Um, I even think maybe like frustration, mm. regret, unbelief. He really is going through a lot as he's writing it, I can tell. And brutal honesty. We're going to get yeah. some of these moments of brutal honesty as well. It's not really a memoir of his own life. And he even says that it's not meant to be a memoir of his own life. He wants to speak out for the 200 million. So he weaves in so many stories from other people. Story Almost every paragraph is a new person, a new story. I mean, does this style seem coherent to you? Does it does it feel incoherent, too chaotic? How does he blend? How does he give structure to the 200 million stories that he wants to tell? Any ideas about that? I was amazed because I don't think it's something that I could have written. <laughs> like, I don't know exactly yeah. how he managed to um, take into account. I, I read just like a brief little portion from like a New York Times article. And I think it mentioned that he used, I don't know if it was in this book or in all his books, but like over 220 accounts um, mm. that he collected. And those were from experiences and from his research. Um, but being able to compile that all together and give the reader such an exposure was really powerful as I was reading. And I really yeah. enjoyed it because it kept the reading interesting Yeah, and it allowed for you to relate to, to what was going on better, I think, because there was so many people involved. I mean, if we think of him writing, how, how did he, he was in this labor camp, of course, and you don't, he doesn't, you don't, you don't really have paper or pencils. So we might ask, how did he write this book? Well, he memorized a lot of it. <laughs> There's this chunk that I wanted to assign, but I, the PDF was just getting too big in which he describes the process of memorization. He would use certain mnemonic devices or matchsticks that he would line up in certain ways. And he would just memorize huge, huge portions of it. Story, like wow. stories that other people told him that he would just commit to memory because that's the only way that he, he could do it. So it, I mean, for, for us to consider writing it with all of our modern conveniences, laptops, the internet, right. is, would, would seem almost impossible. It's such a it's such a colossal book that even to to imagine writing it even with these conveniences seems impossible. But to do it in a labor camp, he, he I mean he puts it to paper, of course, when he gets released. But even after he's released, he has to hide it. We see this later on. He has to hide it. It's being searched for. You know, this is a kind of a legal thing to be writing in the first place. So, yeah, everything was against him. Virginia Woolf comes to mind. Everything was against him. He had every reason to say to his fellow sufferers look, what do you want me to do? I can't. This is an illegal book. I'm in a labor camp. I can't write this. He said, no, this has to get written and I will write it. So let's not talk about torture. Let's talk about getting arrested. These people getting arrested for no reason, you know, literally no reason. And he would describe some of the scenes of arrest. The uh, 
NKVD, which is the precursor to the KGB, bursting into people's apartments and searching them. Even one horrible story of uh, people in mourning surrounding a, a child's coffin, them flipping the coffin over. You know, just the most absurd and inhuman behavior. But really, people being arrested for no reason because there's a rumor or because the, the police have a quota. You know, that that really is the only reason the police have a quota. Or if yeah. the police aren't arresting people, they'll they the police themselves will become under suspicion. It's quite yep. horrible. But I want to talk about this really provocative claim that Solzhenitsyn makes will make us all feel uncomfortable. Why didn't they resist arrest? You know, that is the big question, right? <laughs> why didn't they arrest? Sorry, why didn't they resist? That is the big question. So if we go to page 14, he says things like, today, those who have continued to live on in comfort scold those who suffered. So it's easy for us to say, well, just say no, you know, resist, fight back. Yes, resistance should have begun right there at the moment of arrest itself, but it did not begin. This is a hard question. It, it, it requires knowledge of human psychology and human nature that maybe we don't have. Does Solzhenitsyn have a theory as to why humans in this scenario don't fight back? Or here's another version of this question. How do you know at what point exactly you should resist? And I mean, he he asked that right on page 13. He specifically asked that question to us. And as I was reading this chapter about all the arrests that were taking place, I was honestly very shocked. I said, how could you let this happen? Yeah. Um, he writes that these people were not guilty of anything. Um, and yet they kind of submitted themselves and just allowed this to happen. And on page 14, he even says that, um, let's see, it's the third paragraph on, or maybe the second paragraph there. It says, sometimes... Sometimes the principal emotion of the person arrested is relief and even happiness. And when I read that, I said, how is that possible? How are these people happy and relieved when they're arrested? And then he goes on to talk about um, the priest that was kind of on the run on page 14 and 15 towards the bottom. He talks about how um, some of his, his flock or his followers, I'm guessing like his congregation was hiding this priest and he was going from house to house. And then the priest says, suffered so painfully from this hard life that when he was finally arrested in 1942, he sang hymns of praise God. Yeah. And it's difficult for us to kind of understand these emotions because I don't know if any of us have ever been arrested or I, I highly doubt that, or if we've ever really lived a life on the run. But yeah. as I was reading about all these people, I just kept thinking to myself, why are you allowing this to happen? And I can't be a judge of that because I wasn't yeah. there and I didn't go through that, but it was shocking. And I think he wants us to, to see the absurdity in all this, but he also wants us to know that it wasn't as easy as, you know, just going or not going. Yeah. People have a part of human nature is this extreme reluctance to be the first to cause trouble. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if I stick my neck out and, and I'm the first to fight back when a police officer is falsely arresting me, then I'm going to be the first that gets mowed down. So, I, I, you know, there's this kind of problem of collective movement. If we all did it at the same time, it would work. But nobody wants to be the first because to be the first is to make yourself the most vulnerable. You know, I was thinking I, like the whole country about the Capitol riot and 
how to how to prevent or stop things like that or um you know mass shootings if there's a mass shooter if everyone in the scenario jumped on him at the same time that that could work but no one wants to be the first because then you're making yourself more more vulnerable more in danger i don't know how we can as as individuals or groups understand this part of our nature this is a wonderful little footnote on page 13 let me read this footnote. I want to read kind of all of it, but I'm going to read the first half of it first. He says, and how we burned in the camps later thinking. What would things have been like if every security operative, when he went out at night to make an arrest, had been uncertain whether he would return alive and had to say goodbye to his family? Or if during periods of mass arrests, as for example in Leningrad when they arrested a quarter of an entire city, people had not simply sat there in their lairs paling with terror at every bang of the downstairs door and at every step on the staircase, but had understood that they had nothing left to lose and had boldly set up in the downstairs hall an ambush of half a dozen people with axes, hammers, pokers, or whatever else was at hand. After all, you knew ahead of time that those blue caps were out at night for no good purpose. And you could be sure ahead of time that you'd be cracking the skull of a cutthroat. Or what about the Black Maria sitting out this car, sitting out there on the street with one lonely chauffeur? What if it had been driven off with its tires spiked? You know, why didn't we organize a kind of militia, you know, a kind of uh, yeah. civilian army and resist? Why didn't we? So in prison, they're torturing themselves. Why didn't we? Why didn't we? And it must have been really frustrating because he is saying, I mean, they had the power to to stop that and prevent that from happening. I mean, I think he he talks about how they outnumbered them, right? Like yeah, there wasn't right. enough of them and they could have easily overtaken these these uh interrogators, these police policemen or whatever they were. And like he says, we didn't love freedom enough just below there. Yeah. We had no awareness of the real situation. And then he goes on to say at the very end that they deserved kind of what happened. And that was very straightforward and I mean, he is saying that these are the consequences of our inactions and our actions. And it's super unfortunate what happened. But I think he's writing all these things to help us be aware of what can happen to us. And I wrote down kind of in my notes as I was reading this that um, you mentioned like shootings and whatnot. No one wants to be like the first one or it's, it's difficult to be the first one. But I kind of thought about how in elementary school, um, at least the elementary school I went to, uh, we would practice like fire drills, earthquake drills, all these different drills so that if it were to happen, we would be yeah. kind of prepared and kind of have that reactiveness. And I think we ourselves, um, especially in today's world with pandemic shootings, everything that's going on, we have to kind of take the unwanted circumstances that are potentially out there. And we have to run through those in our mind and kind of think about how we would react to those situations. And that is one of the blessings of this book, I think, is that it's something we don't want to experience, we don't want to read, but we need to so that if these things come up, we know how to respond. I could not have put it better. I think you're absolutely right. We, luckily, we have not lived through this. Just yeah. as luckily, we haven't lived, I mean, most of us haven't lived through devastating earthquakes or devastating civil unrest. But we have drills, you know, we have earthquake drills, we have fire drills. Th that is one of the purposes of this book. W you could easily ask yourself, why? what is the point of reading a book full of such 
torment and torture and suffering. Why should we ever read a book about such horrible things? Because you're exactly right, Carter. It's a drill. We need to know the horrors that are possible. And we need to educate ourselves as to why they happened. So that when, you know, when it goes down in the real world, we have mentally practiced. Oh, I know what this is. I have seen this play out in that book that I read. So I want to linger here on this footnote. We did not love freedom enough. Do you think he's right? I mean, it's a very controversial thing to say, and I don't want to blame people for ending up in prison who were innocent and, and shouldn't have belonged there. But Solzhenitsyn himself is blaming himself. So we can just quote him. If, 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 he says, if we had done this, if we had done this, quote, we didn't love freedom enough. We submitted. We hurried to submit. We submitted with pleasure. Right? We purely and simply deserved everything that happened afterward. Wow. Is this true? Very difficult to say, yes, they deserved it. No, they didn't on one hand. But on the other hand, they took things for granted that they shouldn't have taken for granted. Yeah. It's easy to point the finger and say, I mean, how could you have let this happen? However, there's, there's more to it. And living in such a society would have been very di different and difficult and um, isn't easy to understand. But I mean, I just can't imagine being in prison for years and all this time thinking about these things. I, I, I bet that was very difficult for him to go through. We'll see in the second half of this little excerpt how he deals with this kind of collective person. Is he personally, is, it, is he in some way personally responsible for the gulags? His answer becomes yes. You know, he's very Dostoevskian in this way. But what does this mean for us in our daily lives, Carter? I mean, here in 2021 in uh, Provo or Kaysville, like crazy lucky. No humans have been luckier than us. So we're not faced with such high stakes decisions as they were. But I still think there's takeaways. Like, what are the takeaways for you? For me, one of them is to not agree to things that you don't believe in. You know what I mean? I mean, for example, can we talk about that? little anecdote about them applauding for Stalin for how long? How long did they go on applauding for Stalin? Oh, it was a long time. I think you said maybe more than 10 minutes. Um, it just dragged on. What, what page is that on? Let's see. I believe it's 69. 69, yeah. I thought this was amusing to read, but also it taught some very powerful lessons here. I'm really glad he included this, honestly, because it talks about how ridiculous the situation was, but yet how fearful these people were. And I felt really bad for him because he talked about how these people did not want to stop clapping for this, for, for Stalin, right? No one wanted to be the first one to stop. And people were willing to just, you know, there were old people there, they were getting tired, but they were willing to just drop dead rather than stop clapping because people were watching these police forces were watching to see yeah. who's going to be the first. And then they would likely be arrested that eventually someone did stop clapping that that had to happen at some point. And he says the squirrel had been smart enough to jump off his revolving wheel. That was on page 70. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because he mentions various animals in all of these. He talks about a rabbit 
talks about a lamb and then he talks about a squirrel. That's right. And in a way he's kind of comparing these animals to sometimes what we as humans act like our, our, our nature. And I think he's saying, look, we need to recognize that we're more than these animals. And that sometimes even if we behave like them, we need to recognize that we are more than that and that Mm. we shouldn't be just mindless creatures. Yeah. He says a submissive sheep will always be good news for a wolf. Again, I'm, 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 I'm wondering what this means for us, you know, listening mm-hmm. us talking about this like we can all answer this these questions privately perhaps but just think about times in your life when this has happened to all of us so i'm going to just i'm not going to cast the the stones or find the the motes in other people's eyes there are beams in my own eyes i go along with things i shouldn't go along with in order to preserve a kind of pleasant social situation i will nod my head and say yes Instead of saying, no, I don't think that's good or true or right. And I think Solzhenitsyn's argument is that if you pile up millions of these instances of people nodding their heads and just saying what is expected or what is um, demanded in order to keep kind of superficial pleasantries, you pile up a mil- 200 million of those, then you get gulags. You know what yep. I mean? So it's like, how do we get gulags? Well, Everyone starts telling white lies. I think that's how you get gulags. Everyone starts telling white lies. So it is kind of our fault. If we all stop telling white lies, stuff like this is much harder to happen. Yeah. And he talks about that too, I think, when he was arrested. He was arrested and he kept asking himself, oh, I shouldn't you know, speak out because I don't want to disturb the people around me. I mean, we want to conform. I think it's easier. Yeah. But is it the right thing to do? Yeah. And that's that's where the it's it's difficult. I mean, and he's like some some of us did fight. Some of us did fight back. There was that woman, remember he talks about that woman who's like grabbing a lamp post and she starts to yeah. scream, I'm being arrested, you know? And what do the onlookers do? Look away. You know, look away. Let's all look away. This isn't my problem. Yeah. If I if I get involved, I'm instantly in trouble. Well, I don't know how to solve this problem, but it has to be a kind of Spartacus. I don't know if people watch Spartacus anymore, but this movie where it's like, <laughs> I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. We all have to announce that we're all in this together and <laughs> we are all our brother's keepers. Yeah? yeah. Stop telling white lies and start taking responsibility for each other. I think. Um, why? Let's see here. Um, why read this catalog of torture? Do we have anything more to say about that? I mean, I thought, should I include this? Should I not? I ended up including it and it, maybe it's somewhat skinnable. Is there a purpose to this or is it just kind of masochistic wallowing? No, I think it was important to read. I think it was very beneficial. So what caught my eye was I was reading all these um, different methods or techniques, I guess, that they would, that they would employ to yeah, because they you know, were, torture and humiliate these people um, was on page 115. He kind of sums it all up why I think it was so important. He says, how ancient it all is, how medieval, how primitive. These things are not new. I think many different civilizations have been doing these same things to humans. And we talked about this. He'll talk about this later on, you know, the threshold when we cross the boundary of good and evil. But yeah. It's it's similar to all these books that we've been reading. These bad things that have been happening, they're not new. 
people and humans have been dealing with um, yeah. unfortunate and unwanted things their entire lives and throughout the history of mankind. And so it's time we recognize them and remember them. It's not new and it's not over. Your lineage involves torturers and murderers and sadists. You know what I mean? This is in our DNA to act this way. It's in our DNA. Um, Socrates quotes uh, Socrates. Solzhenitsyn quotes Socrates' famous dictum, know thyself. And I think what he wants to illustrate in this book is that to know ourselves as humans is to know that we have the potential for barbaric violence and immense cruelty. You do, and I do. I'm not talking about us in the abstract. I mean, us as individuals, we each do. You know, I think this is really important, which takes us right to this good and evil bit. It's a very famous quote. He asks, what is an evildoer? And I want to talk about ideology, but where is that quote? We should read it in its context about good and evil. It's uh, 168, right? He talks about the blue caps. This chapter is called the blue caps. The blue caps uh, the, they would wear these interrogators, and you know these these secret police would wear blue hats. And he thought it was highly ironic that it was that their hats were the color of the sky or the heavens. So he's this wonderful symbol of human barbarism in the guise of divine, enlightened, bright blue light. Yeah, he says. Um, if the reader expects this book to be a political expose, uh, slam its covers shut right now. If only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So what is his argument about ideology? How so we're all good. I mean, I think this makes sense to us. We all recognize this about ourselves and the people that we know. The people that we know and love are good and evil. And we know this about ourselves. We're both good and evil. There's no such thing as an evil person or a good person. How is it that ideology, this is the question, how is it that ideology, according to Solzhenitsyn, convinces people to ignore the good half of their heart and to let the evil half reign free? Why is yeah. ideology so poisonous? Well, he talks about justification. He says that evil is a false justified perception of good um, on page 173. And he also goes on to talk about going back to kind of this question of how humans have this good and evil inside them. He says on 168, under Know Thyself, he says, it is after all only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't. Mm -hmm. And then he even goes into his lieutenant that he had his platoon commander and talks about how they were the best of friends. They had been through war together. They'd eaten out of the same helmet together. Mm -hmm. They'd shared all these experiences. And unfortunately he went off to prison. Whereas this lieutenant, he kind of just continued on with his life and, they just led these two different paths and it would have been so easy for them to have just swapped places um, in the beginning for him to have just continued on and not experienced these things. So there's a, there's a balance in this life of destiny of choice of all these different things that every human has to go through. Yeah. And the question is, is how do we justify our acts? 
are they really good? Are they really bad? And it's a question that we all need to explore um, daily um, so that we we keep ourselves on the straight and narrow, I guess. Motivations matter. This is your point. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and ideology gives us all kinds of motivations. With ideology, with the right political or philosophical motives, we can excuse more heinous crime than... I mean, I love that he compares this political atrocity to Shakespeare's villains. It's like, you know, Iago and Hamlet and Richard III or whatever. Yeah, they were they, they killed people. But at most, they left a dozen corpses on the stage. And they stopped at that number because they had no ideology. This is 174. They stopped at about a dozen corpses because, you know, they don't have political ideology. But ideology, with an ideology, this is, uh, yeah, middle of page 174. Let me just read this. Thanks to ideology, the 20th century was fated to experience evil doing on a scale calculated in the millions. This cannot be denied, nor passed over, nor suppressed. How then do we dare insist that evildoers do not exist? And who was it that destroyed these millions? If you say to yourself, well, I can put these people into jail, I can torture them and get forced confessions out of them, because it, that is what is necessary to bring about this, this, this communal Soviet utopia. So it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. The means will justify the ends. It'll be worth it. It's okay. I, I, this quote may or may not be apocryphal, but people say that Stalin said that to, to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs, you know? So he was willing to destroy, 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 destroy because he had this imaginary uh, paradise in his yeah. brain. And there's no, if the paradise in your brain is sufficiently perfect, which of course it will be because it's totally imaginary. There's no limit to what you will prevent yourself from doing. Everything is worth sacrificing for perfection, right? So avoid ideology. Um, yeah, and kind of what you're saying too, I, I think relates to the end of 175, where he talks about that threshold. You know, He says just at the bottom of that paragraph, he suddenly crosses that threshold. He has left humanity behind and without perhaps the possibility of return yeah. So that kind of idea like Stalin and and Hitler and all these these people who have done such bad things, but they probably were thinking, I mean, yeah. hey, it's it's worth it. It's it's what we need to do, but obviously it wasn't. <laughs> That's right. So I mean, this might seem detached from our lives cuz none of us listening are world leaders, not yet, right. you know, but who knows. But even in our private domestic lives, that we are in analogous situations all the time. Think about spats you get in with your loved ones. Oh, it'll be worth it. I'll say this kind of slightly poisonous thing because I have some motive, I have some purpose, I have some ulterior goal. The ends will justify the means. This is very dangerous. Let's wrap up here by talking about Solzhenitsyn's approach to finding justice. So who do we hold accountable for this? He's writing this now after the fact. And so many people now walking around. I mean, the gulag system to be honest never really ended you we're reading in the news now about there's this i can't remember his name this russian maybe he's ukrainian i don't know maybe you know his name navalny i should maybe google this 
sorry, quickly, it doesn't matter. Oh, I know is. what you're talking about. Yeah. He's in the news. You can Google it, but he's a very outspoken critic of, of Vladimir Putin. Yep. And he's been, many assassination attempts have been yeah, perpetrated on poisoned. him. Poisoned. Poison gas, et cetera, et cetera. And now he is in a labor camp in Russia, literally. Yeah. He's in a labor camp. So the gulags never really went away. There was a great thaw, of course, uh, and the system kind of relaxed itself to some degree. So there were all these people walking around living lives who were perpetuating the system, prison guards, interrogation officers. How does Solzhenitsyn propose or what is what is the solution? Can they be can such a great number of people be held accountable? He compares this to um, the Nuremberg trials. With Nuremberg, yeah. there's lots of people involved with Nuremberg too, but slightly different because you arrest the top Nazis and they are symbols for yep. the system. But here it's, what do we do? What does Solzhenitsyn think we should do? And that's how we'll kind of finish up here. Yeah. So like you said, he does compare what's going on with these, these Nazi criminals. I don't know if he gives us an exact answer, but he definitely explores um, the appropriate type of justice. And I don't know if he gets to a conclusion but he talks about how there's this kind of idea going on that they don't want to open up old wounds, right. that That's right. they just want these people to just go on, don't bring it up. It's something that happened and let's not do it again, but let's not talk about it. They just don't want to open it up. Um, but he's saying, you know, he compares the 86,000 people who were convicted, I guess, um, in, in Germany to the one quarter of a million it would be if it were in Russia. Yeah. So there's a large amount of justice that kind of needs to be served out in his opinion. But he also talks about how it's it's going to be a painful thing to do. And I don't know if, like, as I was reading this, I kept highlighting all these different things, but it seems like he's frustrated, Yeah. but he doesn't know how to go about it. I think you're absolutely right. He he he's kind of giving us a problem that he he demands. He doesn't know how this problem should be solved, but what he what he is sure of is that a solution is necessary, or else yeah. we teach an entire generation of new Russians that atrocities don't matter, and that yep. there is no justice. So I'll just read a few snippets here. But for the sake of our country, this is 177, but for the sake yeah. of our country and our children, we have the duty to seek them all out and bring them to trial. Not to put them on trial so much as their crimes and to compel each one of them to announce loudly, yes, I was an executioner and a murderer. And if these words were spoken in our country only one quarter of a million times, would it perhaps be enough? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's how can you rectify such a, a, a horrible wound? But he does say we have to condemn this idea publicly because the very end of the section. Yep. Um, well, he talks about that. If we don't address this issue, it's going to rise up a thousand fold in the future. Yeah. And so it's better to take care of this problem now than deal with future consequences that are just going to keep building over time. And yep. in a way, I think, we're seeing that in the United States with um, with racism, with equality, these things that have happened in the past, we're still struggling to address right. these things today. So I think he's giving us great insight into we need to be accountable and we need to to talk about these things to, yes. to make change. 
Yes, it's going to, he says it's going to be, imagine young people growing up in a country where foul deeds are never punished, right? Mm -hmm. It will be impossible to live in such a country. Yeah. So we, we have to do our best. You know, it's not going to be perfect. He's like, this is a really messy thing. How could we bring a quarter of a million people to, to trial? Maybe we can't, but we can't just therefore say, yeah, we can do nothing about it. We have to do our best. Thank you so much. You came so well prepared and I really appreciate it. And therefore I'm sure your class will learn a lot and really enjoy this. So yeah, thank you. Have a good day and a good weekend, Carter. You too. Bye. Today's poem of the day is by Osip Mandelstam, a Russian poet who I think I've already featured in the poem of the day in a previous podcast. He died in one of these gulags. And this is a poem by him called Tristia, which is a reference to Ovid, the Roman poet, who likewise, because he displeased an emperor, was exiled from his home. So this is Tristia by Osip Mandelstam, translated by Peter McCary. All there is to know on the art of leaving I've learned in careful pillow talk at night. The oxen ruminate. It'll soon be morning. The night watch does its rounds round to the light. I trace the rubric of the cockerel darkness when, taking up his road with brimming eyes, the one who's leaving suddenly feels its harshness hit home. The muses' song, the women's cries. Who can tell what an abstract noun like leaving will come to mean when it's our turn? What are we to make of the cockerel crowing when midnight flames in the citadel still burn? And in the dawn of some new life or other with oxen ruminating in the hay, why does the herald of this new world order preen on the battlements to greet the day? I love the ordinariness of fabric. The shuttle, warp and weft, the spindles hum. And here she's barefoot, feather light, in cambric shift, running to meet you. Glad you've come. Our life is threadbare, and the words to measure joy are worn thin with repetition we'll keep on using them. But what we treasure now is just the flash of recognition. So be it then. A translucent figure lies on a clean clay dish. A squirrel pelts stretched out. A girl, a fortune teller, waits to see which way the wax will melt. It's not for us to test the reaper's metal. The wax is lost on women, bronze on men. For us, The die is only cast in battle. Vision is theirs to the living end. Up next will be another recording about more chunks of the Gulag Archipelago. In the meantime, keep reading it and keep enjoying its urgency, its lyrical power, and its call to witness. (laughs) 